there, and then we'll talk some about uh, the background of First John and so forth. Somebody read First uh, John chapter one, verses one to four. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. I think you can probably see, even from that uh, beginning of First John, that uh, this is uh, typical John writing. <laughs> And uh, there's nothing more John-like than First John. <laughs> uh, and, you know, John's approach and some of the ways he writes are distinct. Someone has described this kind of like a winding spiral staircase. You know, it's always revolving around the same center, but just keep going up to a higher level. That might be a good way of kind of thinking of the book. There are certain characteristics of John. One is repetition. He keeps coming back to the same terms, the same main ideas. Another is simplicity. Now, simplicity in structure. Simple sentences, easy vocabulary, but it's very profound. There's a lot of depth in the concepts. It's interesting how you can talk about such profound things with such a limited vocabulary and such a very direct sentence structure. But that's exactly what you see in all of John's books. And particularly, I would say that's true of the Gospel of John and First John. And uh, there's a lot of bluntness in First John. There's no room for compromise. There's no middle ground. And John will just say it like it is. <laughs> He's very direct in what he says. Now, one of the things that's uh, unusual about First John, as you just start to read it, is what? doesn't say, John an Apostle to George and Fred and all those other people that we're going to pass the letter to. Yeah, exactly. There is no typical letter introductory format. It doesn't follow the proper letter style. Now, John knows how, because 2nd and 3rd John has it. <laughs> so it wasn't that John just never used that, but he doesn't hear. I'm not sure that I know why, but I will say that by doing it this way, he really grabs our attention from the beginning. I mean, he just plunges in. You know, there's there's no preparation, there's no introduction. We're right in the middle of the subject within the first few words. Um, does this remind you of any other New Testament letters? <clears throat> say yes. Hebrews. Hebrews, yeah. Hebrews, God, who in various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets and all that. It just starts. There's no letter introduction in Hebrews either. And again, it kind of has the effect of immediately putting you into the theme. Now, trying to understand the theme of the book of 1 John is challenging, but I think essentially, you might try to describe this in different categories, but essentially... He is giving us ways of testing whether we, are, whether we have life in Christ. And there are three basic tests. 
righteousness or obedience or whatever you want to say. We have to do what God says. Love for each other and believing that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. So to have life in the Lord, we have to obey, we have to love, and we have to believe that Jesus came in the flesh. We'll talk more about all of those over and over again because he's going to come back to all of those points many, many times. This first paragraph is a little hard to follow. You know, the sentence is begun in verse 1 with the object of the sentence. Then there's a couple of parenthetical interruptions in the end of verse 1 and verse 2. Then he continues the sentence in verse 3, kind of re, re, uh, kind of summarizing verse 1. And finally the main verb occurs in verse 3. And then he gives the two purposes in the latter part of verse 3 and verse 4. So this is just a complicated sentence in some ways. Um, but look at it. We, we, when, we, when we look through First John, we're going to go through this in a little bit more detail than we usually would. It's kind of one of those deals where it's hard to understand it if you don't. Maybe a little hard to understand it when we do, but I think it's worth trying to just back, you know, kind of be calm and deliberate and try to understand it a step at a time. He says, what was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, and what we've looked at and touched with our hands. So he starts with the thing. Now, he doesn't even tell you what we're doing with this what. He will eventually say about this what, in verse 3, that this what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. But he doesn't start with proclaiming it. He starts with the what that is proclaimed, which means that the thing proclaimed is more important than the act of proclaiming it. He's really giving emphasis to the thing that's being announced. That's what the focus is on. It's not so much on, you know, John or whoever is doing the announcing, but look at what it is that they are announcing. And we have heard, we have seen, and so forth. This, John has the credentials to speak because he has had all this contact with this what. Now look at the specifics. What was from the beginning? Now, we've got to pretty much know what this is before it makes much sense to talk about it. So what is the what here? What? What's he talking about? <laughs> well, Jesus being the whole... Jesus. Yeah, the whole gospel. But, but especially Jesus, I think. Um, particularly when he talks about touching with our hands and things like that. He's really talking about Jesus. And uh, so if he's saying Jesus was from the beginning, well, he was, right? I mean, Jesus has always been. Why tell us that Jesus was from the beginning? What does that emphasize about him? He's God. Yes. He's eternal nature. Yes. He's not created. And he's not an angel. Okay. <laughs> When you think about John's purpose in 1 John, and I don't know that we know this yet, but he was dealing with a lot of false teachers who came up with kind of a new notion. Jesus is from the beginning. He's no novelty. The false teachers come along later with all their ideas, but Jesus has already existed for a long, long time before then. So I think that's the idea. And he'll point out different times. 
how, the the long term, you know, evidence for Jesus, and and this is not some newfangled idea in contrast with these false doctrines. So what we've heard, what what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Now there's four ways we've had contact with these things, right? We've heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked at, we've touched with our hands. Um, Do you see some sort of a pattern in those three things? Heard, saw, looked at, and touched. Well, saw and looked at are pretty much the same thing. They are pretty close. They kind of become more intimate. Yes. I think it becomes more intensified. Not only do we hear it, we saw it. Not only do we hear it and see it, we look at it. There is a little difference between seeing something and looking at it and then touching it. I mean, that's even a closer degree of connection. So it's from what was most remote to what is nearest. So I think there is a progression. So they heard Jesus. What we've seen with our eyes. Now, that seems kind of like talking about a deep abyss or a long eternity or something. What we've seen with our eyes as if there's some other way to see something. Oh, is he trying to say like we saw it physically, like we didn't just see it by faith? Exactly, (laughs) I think so. Sometimes we see, oh, I see that. But we don't mean we see that with our eyes. We mean we get it, we understand it. Now the Bible sometimes uses it that way. But he's saying, no, we actually saw him with our eyes. We visually, I mean, the incarnation was real. This is not some philosophy, some figure of speech. Uh, He was no, no phantom. It wasn't some vision we saw with our eyes and we looked at and touched with our hands. Now, why would he say we touched with our hands? Again, it's it's the same concept, and it's also, you know, it's not a vision, so it's something that you can actually feel. Yes. It makes it stronger. Touching, I think, would imply the hands. But touching with your hands just makes you feel that physical connection. Really, I would say, for most of us, we would agree that uh, touching is about the strongest evidence that the human senses can furnish. Would you agree with that? You know, the question is, is Ryan, was Ryan in the study? You know, is is Ryan here? And somebody said, I hear him. Well, that's pretty good evidence. But I said, I see him. But what if I say, I'm touching him. (laughs) Now, that just makes you feel like it's even more real. You know, seeing him's pretty good. You know, I mean, if you see him, he's here. But you touch him, you feel like you've just got even more concrete. I think that's true with Jesus. I mean, it's like we didn't just see him. We, we touched him. You know, this is, this is the most concrete thing you can say. Now, why would he emphasize all this concrete involvement with Jesus? I think, among other things, he's showing the reality of Jesus becoming a man. He's giving evidence that you can, you can, you know, give this to the jury. You know, we heard him, we saw him with our eyes, we beheld him, and we actually touched him with our hands. There was 
uh, there were docetic views about Jesus that said that he wasn't really real. Um, and this is saying, yes, he was. He was truly a man. He was really there. And we really saw it. There are a lot of religions that are based on like ideas or philosophies or even visions that some founders had. But Christianity's basis is very historical. You know, you could actually reach out and touch the Messiah. You know, that, that, that's, that's as concrete as you can get. This, these things really happen. Alright, so that's uh, that's the first part of verse 1. <laughs> Do you have a thought or comment about that? The, talking about our eyes and our hands, is that another, like a proof, you know, I, John, I, the apostles, I, the disciples, saw this. Yes, it is. Yeah, he stressed, he, this is, we have done this. So, the John who wrote this, he didn't just hear about somebody who touched Jesus. He touched him himself. You know, he heard him himself. He beheld him himself. With his own eyes, he saw him. Yeah, I think so. That's a good point. Well, you know, so he has a couple of asides before we really get down to what the what's all about. And one of the asides is the end of verse 1, concerning the word of life. Well, that uh, actually is a bit controversial. What does he mean concerning the word of life? How do you interpret the word, word, there? As Jesus? I would too. And do we have any backing for that in the scriptures? John 1. Any other passage that uses the word for Jesus? Yes. <laughs> because you asked the question. Revelation uses it. Yeah. John's the only one that does that. Yes, exactly. Remember where John uses it in Revelation? And his name was the word, was the word of God. Yeah, in the vision uh, in chapter one. 19. 19, who said that? Yeah. I did. Good job. Yeah, when, when Jesus rode out on the white horse with his armies following him in chapter 19, he had a bunch of names in that uh, vision. One of them was the word of God. So exactly, John is the only one that uh, uses the word for Jesus. Now, think about it this way. The message, the Christian message, took on a personal form in Jesus. He was the message. He was God's communication to us. A word tells you something. It says something. Jesus was a personal statement to us. Uh, you know, the Christian message could be heard and seen and even touched. Now, this is similar to a lot of things in John. Uh, Jesus gave the word and he is the word. Jesus gives life, he is the life. You know, Jesus, you know, uh, is the resurrection and he was raised. There's a lot of things like that. Jesus shows the way, he is the way. You know, he tells the truth, he is the truth. That's a typical kind of pattern. And so he says, concerning the word of life, Jesus is the source of life, he is life. 49% of the occurrences in the New Testament of the word life are in John's writings. 
I mean, it's all over John's writings. Jesus is the life. And so, what, what all this was related to the word of life. And then he tells us about that life. He says in verse 2, And the life was manifested. You know, the, it, it, the life was, but now it's been manifested. The word manifested means like what? Established. Not quite established. Like shown? Shown. Known. Yeah. Shown, <laughs> revealed. Now, here's the thing. If if this word, we understand what the, who the word was, if the word of life hadn't been manifested, then we wouldn't have been able to see it, or hear it, or, or touch it. You know, this shows you how we could actually hear and feel the word of life, because God caused him to be manifested. This life was historically revealed. And he says, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. Now, when you talk about see, testify, and proclaim, you think about, you know, evidence. You know, testify is to communicate the truth, like on the witness stand. Proclaim is to communicate uh, the truth. Seeing is your evidence. So, this life was manifested. We've seen, testified, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and has been manif- and was manifested to us. So, this word of life, Jesus, was with the Father, now it's been revealed to us. So, he really is kind of, these are kind of parenthetical remarks. The end of verse 1 and verse 2. And now he goes back to his main point in verse 3. What we have seen and heard, that kind of summarizes verse 1. You know, what we've seen and heard, now we come to the point, we proclaim to you also. Um, so, if, if there's a doctrine that denies the physical nature of Jesus, uh, the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and all that, that's not a Christian doctrine. You know, how many times does he say, in one way or another, we've seen him? He says, in verse 1, we've seen with our eyes and we've looked at. In verse 2, and we have seen. And verse 3, what we've seen. Because you usually would use seeing most like for a bearing witness kind of a thing. We call, what kind of witnesses do we really want in a trial? Eyewitnesses. Really, about the only kind of witness there is when it's all said and done. You're going to have a witness. He needs to be an eyewitness. You go up to the trial and the judge said, Did you see him kill the guy? He said, No, but I heard a lot about it. You know, that was, He'd be an ear witness. Yeah, that would be not even quite that if he just heard about it. But uh, yeah, we want eyewitnesses. So, so he, we've, we've seen and heard and we proclaim to you. The word proclaim, what does that mean to you? Announce. Yeah, to announce. To uh, almost gives you the idea of some authoritative declaration. We proclaim to you. As opposed to maybe monopolizing on it. You know, could they have seen and heard and felt the word and just not told anybody? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They could have just kind of kept it to themselves. But no, they proclaimed it so that other people would know. And why? Why did they proclaim what they'd seen and heard? 
so that you may have fellowship with us? Yes. They declared what they knew of the word of life so that they could have mutual fellowship with other believers. You know, fellowship is a strong word. It it refers to that close bond between Christians. Now, the purpose of the proclamation, in part, was to bring those who believe in the word together. To bring a bond between them. You know, evangelism, proclaiming Jesus, the goal is not just leaving people where they are but to bring them together with one another. There is a together aspect of Christianity. Some people think, I'm just going to be kind of a private Christian. I'll just do the Jesus thing in my own time, my own way, in the privacy of my own home. And I won't really have anything to do with other people. I'm just going to follow Jesus myself. That is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity involves, you know, mutual fellowship. But not just that. Our fellowship is with who? The Father and the Son. Yeah. The goal then of this proclamation was not just some social friendship, some, you know, we we really have a good time together. But the goal and the basis of our fellowship, our being brethren together, is the truth, is the Father and the Son. You know, so we have fellowship not just with each other, but we have fellowship with God and with Jesus through this proclaimed message. And that's even a higher goal. We're wanting that. And then, why does he write these things in verse 4? That their joy would be full. And full joy depends on fellowship among us and fellowship with the Father and the Son. We cannot have full joy without that. Um... So only through what they wrote can we have the fellowship with each other and with the Father and Son, and only through that fellowship can we have true joy. That was a mouthful just to start this uh, book, don't you think? You know, so basically he says, there's this thing we heard, saw, and touched. It was the word of life uh, that was manifested to us. We saw and heard, and therefore we proclaimed, so that you would have fellowship with each other, fellowship with God and His Son, so that your joy would be complete. You have to read that a bunch of times to even follow what he's saying, but once you see it, he said a lot in four verses. And I tried to imitate some of that. So, comments or questions on those four verses? This is not a super important comment. Um, but I was really excited because I saw a lot of comparisons to the book of John like yes. in those four verses. He talks, well, he mentions testifying, which was kind of like a big theme in the book of John. And then he talks about, um, how Jesus was with the father and Jesus talks about that a ton in John. And then maybe also like the whole idea of having fellowship and we would be one, like Jesus' prayer, especially in John. So. I don't know. I just thought that was cool. Yeah, it's all over the place. Absolutely. Very close connections between John and First John. Definitely. Is there no reference to the Spirit? Or do we not have fellowship with the Spirit? Well, I think we do have fellowship with the Spirit. I mean, you've got a passage like 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen: The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
So I think that would prove we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't deal with that at this point here, though. Maybe a little bit because he's dealing more with the false doctrine uh, that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. So I think here he's emphasizing more the idea of the fellowship with Jesus. Though he's going to talk about the Spirit later on in the book, quite a bit. Uh, but at this point, he doesn't. So, yeah, good question. What was that verse reference? Second Corinthians 13. It depends on your translation, whether it's 13 or 14. 13, 13, and 13, 14. Last verse of 13. Some, some Bibles divide that, that verse into 13 and 14, and some just keep it as one verse. So he starts out calling Jesus a what? Yes, he does. Because I'm assuming because he's referring to him as the Word. I think so. And then refers to the Word as Jesus. Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah, the, the Word does refer to Jesus. Yeah, exactly. You said that was controversial? Some people think the Word of Life there means just the Gospel message. But I think it's talking about the person of Jesus. How did you? How do you touch the? I was going to say, how do you touch and you hear the the gospel message with your hands and on a scroll? Yeah, yeah. I knew it was simple. Yeah, no, I I agree. I don't think that that's an adequate explanation, but that is a fairly common explanation. Probably not the majority. All right, well, can we uh, proceed a little bit here? Um, I guess let's uh, read 5 to 10. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is a bit more concrete, perhaps, but there is still a lot in these verses. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. So, how did they get the message? They heard it. What? They heard it. They heard it from? Directly. Right. So, they heard this message directly <laughs> from the Lord, as opposed to some philosophical, uh, you know, exploration, some idea, some feeling, or whatever. This is the message we've heard from him. Uh, if we heard it from him, do we have any right to change it? You know, we can't redefine it, we can't modernize it. It's not negotiable. We got the message from him, and we got to take it or leave it like it was. And we announce this message to you. He passed the message on, that was nice. We get the benefit of that. What is the message? God is light. God is light. How light is God? 100% because there's no darkness. That is so John. <laughs> you know, he'll say something and then he'll emphasize it by denying the opposite. 
So he is light, and there is no darkness in him. So when he got when it's all said and done, he is one hundred percent pure light. Now, in what sense is God light? How would you how would you see him? What would you see that as meaning as God is light? Holy. All right. Yes, he's light morally. He is holy, righteous, pure. How else is he light? A guide. Is a guide. As in, if you're lost in the dark, and it will lead you, guide your path. Okay. Helps us see. Yeah. So I would say that's more the intellectual idea. He's like the light of truth. He's the revealed light. And there's another sense in which God is light. Purity. Yeah, that's though pretty much what we said with uh, holiness. The light bulb, the bright idea. Yeah, how, <laughs> how about physically? The glory, the majesty. Uh, you know, he dwells in unapproachable light that no one has seen or can see. Now, are there some glimpses of God as being light in the Bible? Ezekiel. <laughs> Ezekiel, yes. The appearance of the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Yes, exactly. Moses', Moses face that shone. Yeah, he absorbed a little bit of it. The scene in Isaiah. There's all these things going on, and, and there's lots of light and the cloud and all of that. Yeah. That's good. But. It's more Ezekiel, but. Ezekiel 1? Yes. And what? The whole chapter, really. Oh, okay. yeah. What she gave was 28, but. Really, there's a lot of light in that whole chapter. Does Paul count? Yeah, Paul saw the light of Jesus shining so brightly in the noonday sun. How about the transfiguration? transfiguration? Yeah, that's a good one. And Revelation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What did Jesus' face look like? Shone like wool or snow. No, that's his hair. The sun. The face was like sun. Yeah. Bright as the sun. Yeah, exactly. Was the Making that up. There was lightning. I don't know about that. There was lightning. Yeah. There's around the throne was the emerald, or the rainbow, rainbow, and the seven lamps too. <laughs> so you got quite a bit of light sources there. And whenever you're talking about just innocence, God in general, we've been talking about the way that the altar and the holy of holies was all covered with gold. And then you got the lights and the lampstands, it's all reflecting. You've got this gold everywhere, that whole bright, okay. trying to be an image of what it is like with God himself. What does he say about God? He doesn't say God has light, God is in the light. Mm-hmm. He says God is light. That's part of his nature and character. Light's not what God does. Light's what he is. You know... And uh, there, in him there is no darkness. So he is pure light. And of course, what does light do? It shines. So that's what God does. Um, and, you know, there is, there's like, there's no speck of darkness. There's no shade of darkness. There's no exception. He is absolutely light. Now, that means some things for us. If God is pure light, then, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and we walk in the, and, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Um, the fact that God is light has practical implications. You know, 
we can't have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. You know, because God's all light. So, like, what points of intersection do light and darkness have? What points of intersection? Yeah. Where do they intersect? At dawn. <laughs> 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 yeah. the lamps glow. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, they shut each other out. You know, light and darkness are really opposites. So, the way he's looking at this... You know, if you are in darkness and God is all light, then you have nothing, there's no basis for fellowship, you have nothing in common. That's that's the idea. Now, you can see that the, the way we should live is based upon God's nature. You know, the character of God and what God is tells you how we must be, how we must live if we're going to have fellowship with him. Um, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Are there people who say, oh, I'm so close to God. Oh, I love God so much. Oh, yes, I'm just very, I'm intimate with God. But they don't live right. Well, the book of First John talks a lot about people who say things that aren't true. You know, it's one thing to say it, but sin is always a barrier to fellowship with God. Um, you know, we test the words by what they do. So a person who says, oh, we have fellowship with God, but we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. You know, that, that's just not the truth. Uh, but on the other hand, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. Now, do you see the difference between God's relationship to the light and our relationship to the light? We're in it and God is it? Yes. God is it, we walk in it. There's a difference. Uh, we walk in the element of God's being, you know, in the light. Um, and and so that's our life. We walk in the light, we... we you know, the idea of walking almost involves the idea of making progress, of going down a path. Now, what happens if we walk in the light as, as he himself is in the light? What What is the result? We have fellowship with one another. Is that what you'd expected him to say? I would have said if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. him. John does this all the time. <laughs> the conclusion will always go a step beyond what you expected. He, I don't know how many times in First John, when he comes to the conclusion, you think you know what he's going to say, he, he, he skips a step. You know, he jumps to another level. It's like, huh? But this is true. You know, uh, it, it's kind of an interesting surprise. If we walk in the light, then that is the basis of our fellowship with each other. And, and John has a lot to say about each other. John really believes that our uh, service to God must be based upon our being together and, and having fellowship with each other. Um, there's no room for just kind of, I'm going to freelance this. You know, I'm just going to have one-on-one communion with the Lord. I don't need his people. No. We walk in the light, we have fellowship with each other. Um, 
people who have trouble maintaining fellowship with the people in the light you might wonder about them. Are they really in the light? Is there some problem with their fellowship with God? So we have fellowship with, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Um, now, there were these people who basically said that Jesus was a man only. And when Jesus was baptized and the dove came down on him, the Christ came into Jesus. He wasn't the Christ, the Christ entered him. And then you can't kill the Christ. So before Jesus died, the Christ left him. And Jesus died as a, a just a man. But when he says the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Jesus was God's son when he shed the blood, too. And when he says the blood cleanses us from all sin, I think it's important to understand what that means. What is so special about Jesus' blood? It cleanses us from all sin. <laughs> so, why didn't somebody maybe uh, take blood from him, you know, every few weeks, and get a real supply of that, so it would be, you know, more of it to cleanse us? Would that have helped? It was the sh- shedding of his blood that cleanses us from sin. So if we gashed him. <laughs> no. What does the shedding of his blood mean? His death. His death, yes. You know, I think it's important to understand that when we're talking about the blood cleansing us, it's not that just there was some special thing about Jesus' blood, man, when he bled. You know, it was something <laughs> different. This is his death. That's really the point. He died in our place, and so his death his sacrifice cleanses us from sin. Um, now, wait a minute. That does not seem possible in this passage. Let me show you why. If you walk in the light, how could the blood of Jesus cleanse you from sin? If you walked in the light, you wouldn't sin, right? How many sins are in the light? So if you walk in the light, you don't need Jesus' blood to cleanse you from sin. You don't have any sin to be cleansed from, right? Jesus' blood is what put you in the light in the first place. (laughs) Yes. This is an interesting twist in this passage. And it makes us reflect on a little bit more. You know, does walking in the light mean that I never sin? If it did, this would be a, a useless conclusion. If walking the light means walking sinlessly, then you don't have any sins for the blood to cleanse. That's not a real benefit. But if 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 walking the light doesn't mean walking sinlessly, then it's a real blessing to know if I'll walk in the light, the blood will cleanse us from, from all sin. The truth is, I am not light like God is light. I walk in the light. Doesn't mean I don't take some steps outside the light. But as I walk in the light, Jesus' blood keeps running through the body and cleansing our sin. There is continuing fellowship with God for the person who walks in the light. Walks sinlessly? Nobody walks sinlessly. But walks in the light. Lives in the light. An occasional step out? Yes. But his walk is in the light. And then he has the confidence that Jesus' death 
the blood he shed in his death continually cleanses from sin. The people who walk in the light, truly walk in the light, are the ones who are most likely to see their flaws and their sins and to recognize their need for Jesus' blood that continually cleanse them from their sins. The people who think, well, no, I walk in the light. I don't need Jesus' blood to cleanse me. Are not very close to light at all. Yeah, I use that illustration all the time. If you have you ever seen the air in the light of the sun coming in the window? And if you did, did you keep breathing after you saw what all was in that air? Isn't it crazy how much gunk there is in our air? But you don't see it right now. Why don't you see it? Not enough light. Not enough light. If you don't see any problems in your life, you see no sin, you see no mistakes, you don't see any flaws, you know what that tells me? You're in such dim lighting, you can't even see these things that are so glaring. Get closer to Jesus, the light, and you'll start seeing. That's a mouthful in 6 and 7. You have 5, 6, and 7. Do you have some comments and questions through 7? Yes. Just one that the first recorded words of God that we have are, let there be light. Yes. So that kind of goes again back to the whole, how does it fit with what God is? The first thing that God wanted in his creation was light. Good point. Yes. Another one in Revelation, there's no need for the sun because God is there. That's right. Yeah. Good point. So, one thing we can see that's a hindrance to our fellowship with God is walking in darkness. That won't work. Here's the second thing. Denying the presence of sin. If we say that we have no sin, see, cleanse of all sin, but if we say we have no sin, you know, cleanse me of my sin, I don't have any sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, Oh, we, it's just not true. We are, have sin. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's that's what he's, if if we say we have no sin, you know, not just saying, if we say we had no sin. Everybody said, well, I had sin, but I got over it, (laughs) you know, and I don't have it anymore. No, he's saying, if we say we have no sin, we deceive who? We sure don't deceive anybody else. We're not going to get anybody else to believe, especially if they live around us. You know, if they live in our house, nobody can believe us. We said, I don't have any sin. You know, tell that to your brother or sister. You know, your parents or your whatever. You know, your wife or husband. Wow, you certainly do. And, you know, denying the presence of sin in our lives is just to willfully try to kind of you know, I don't know, Just not, I'm not going to face up to it. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to admit that it's there. That's so foolish because we don't need to. You know, sometimes we may try to act like we have no sin so we don't get punished. But really what we need to do to not get punished is verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, we can be forgiven. 
Instead of denying sin, we ought to confess it. He says confess our sins. What does that tell you? Plural. You what? Plural. Plural. And therefore he's saying confess all of them. Yeah, and confess specific acts of sin. Confess our sin might give you the idea we confess that we are sinners, we're sinful. Our generic sins. Yeah, exactly. I'm a sinner. It's easy to say I'm a sinner, right? It's a lot harder to confess your sin. State specifically what you've done wrong. I'm a sinner. Or what are you, what have you sinned in? Where, what are your sins? Uh, I don't know. I'm a sinner. Yeah. He says, if we confess our sins. Um, confess our sins to who? doesn't tell us here. It doesn't. And I'm not sure I know whether he means to God or to each other. Both are true. We need to do both. And he's kind of been interchanging fellowship with God and fellowship with each other in this passage. So I can really see that either way. Uh, If we confess our sins to each other, if we confess our sins to God, either way he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, We don't need to try to act like we're perfect. God sees through that one anyway. Because if if we'll own up and take responsibility and confess our sins, then God will forgive us. That's an amazing, amazing thought. And, And in verse 10, if we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You know, he says, and it's kind of the climax, you know, he says uh, in verse 6, if we uh, say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And then we lead ourselves astray in verse 8. And finally in verse 10, we make God a liar. We just get worse and worse. You know, the whole plan of redemption that God gave, the whole idea of sending a son assumes men are sinners and that they need salvation. You know, God says we do sin. If we say we don't, we're contradicting him. Um, comments and, and questions to verse 10. In verse 10, when it says his word, is that Jesus or is it his word as in um, scripture? I think it's his word of scripture. Yeah. I think we've, uh, we've, we've switched that. John talks a lot in the gospel about uh, the word uh, the message, and so I think that is probably we probably switched that by now. I have a question. Yes. Um, I used to think that it's a, about the idea of walking in the light. I used to think that if you committed a sin, then like you were no longer with God, and so like if you were to die at that point, like you would not be saved. Like, oh, I have a sin. And I would have to, like, do something specific, like, specifically confess that sin in order to get back in the light and be back with God again. Does this passage speak to that at all? Um, Well, it speaks to the idea that the blood keeps cleansing your sin as long as you walk in the light. Now, I think it's true to say sin um, is a but blocks our relationship with God. Sin, sin is a barrier between us and God. 
we have sin, it, it cuts us off from God. But when the blood is cleansing us from sins, then we don't have that sin because of the cleansing, the forgiveness by the blood, and that's what enables us to maintain our fellowship with God because Jesus' blood cleanses the sin. So if we'll walk in the light, the sins that are cleansed by the blood don't interfere with our continuing relationship with God. Now, the question might be, when do we go from walking in the light to walking in darkness? That's a question. And what if we... I, I've just been thinking about this. I've been corresponding with somebody, and this, there's some things that have come up, and I've, I've gone back to this. I, I think this might be helpful, just to think about. You know... There are, I, I'm using this as an illustration, although this is a good point in itself. <laughs> but there are times when you talk about some, um, you know, kind of a debated issue or question about, you know, something we do or believe or whatever. And somebody says, is that, do you think that's a salvation issue? And you don't know what that means for them. It's kind of like, well, do you believe that you're doing this or not doing it, or you're believing or not believing it? Do you think that could actually affect whether or not you were saved or lost? Well, now, when people ask that, I think they do it to try to prejudice the question. It's kind of like, you know, tell me yes or no if you stop beating your wife. That really gets you in trouble either way. Uh, so if you say, yes, it's a salvation issue, then they'll say, you're taking your view on this very difficult thing, and you're saying God's going to send somebody to hell if they don't believe what you believe about this. If you say, no, I don't think it's a salvation issue, then it's like, well, then it doesn't matter. You know, if it's not a salvation issue, why are we even talking about it? I'm going to affect your salvation. Well, I don't like that approach, and here's one reason I don't. What if we took something, some, some action, some practice, and we said, all right, here's what we know about it. We know for sure that God wants it, but we know absolutely for sure it will not affect our salvation. Even though he wants it, if we don't do it, he will not send us to hell. It won't, it won't have any bearing on our going to heaven. We just know he wants it, but it isn't a salvation issue. What, I don't think we can come up with something like that, but what if we could? What would we do then? When we say, oh, it doesn't affect my salvation, so I won't buy, I don't have to worry about it. Would that be a good attitude? What should we do? Do it anyways. Well, it won't affect our salvation. <laughs> yeah, but God wants it. So if it doesn't affect our salvation, <laughs> what do we care what God wants? As if that's the only question. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, Wow. So all we're in this for is to get something out of God. We don't love Him. We don't trust Him. We don't want to glorify Him. We don't care about pleasing Him. All that matters is, are we still on the list? <laughs> wow! What an attitude that is toward God. Now, I think, though, we sometimes almost get to that point. You know, we would like to find out. You tell me, I do this, 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 this. Now, put that in the computer, and does that spit out saved or lost? I don't think we got that computer. It's, it's not down here anyway. So, I, I am not the guy to come to to say, all right, now, 
can I do this and still walk in the light? Or does that put me walking in darkness? And Does it matter? You know, I think I can have confidence in my continuing salvation because Jesus' blood cleanses me. But my reason for wanting to do exactly what I believe God wants me to is not because I think every detail of that will automatically send me to hell. It's because I want to please God. I love him. I trust him. I'm, I'm his disciple. I'm, I, he, he's my father. I mean, you know, it'd be like saying, you know, some of you guys who are, you know, really even like grown children, you know, what if, what if your parents said, I really want you to do this? Well, what if you say, well, if I don't, will you cut me out of my will? You will? <laughs> you know? Will you turn, your, turn me over your knee? I mean, you know, it gets to the point where, yeah, I mean, even, I don't know, uh, Logan, you've been spanked in the last six weeks? <laughs> been spanked in the last six months? Yeah. You really worried about getting a spanking? Yeah. I doubt that you will. You know, but but when you're Logan's age, you know, you don't think, well, what are they going to do to me if I don't do it? You love your parents. You respect your parents. You trust your parents if you've got good parents. You're not pleasing them just because you think, well, it's the only way I'm going to get in the will. Or, you know, man, if I don't, look what they're going to do to me. I mean, it almost becomes kind of ridiculous. You see parents of really good kids every once in a while that are as old as Logan who are like, if you don't do this, I'm going to do this, this, this. It's like, whoa, they have to do that to get, you know, a 15-year-old to obey them? What a horrible relationship. God wants this close relationship with us. He loves us. He wants us to love him. And so we have to get beyond this thing of, well, I'm just trying to figure out what's the minimum possible I can do and still I'm okay. I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's how we look at this. I think this shows us we can have confidence. Now, it's not like, uh, you know, arrogant confidence. You know, it's not like, I can live any, I can do anything I want to. I can, I can sin all I want to and I'm still fine. No, it's not like that. We wouldn't want it to be. But we are saying, if we walk in the light, and if we confess our sins, and if we're really earnest in seeking the Lord, he cleanses us. He forgives us. You know, he is not trying to figure out how can he trip us up and catch us in a bad moment so he can send us to hell. That is not God. That's not what we see in God. We see him constantly seeking us and wanting fellowship with us and loving us. And so I don't think we ought to live with a constant sense of insecurity. You know, I might mess up here. I don't know. It's not. It's almost like, you know, the Christian life is not like a minefield where every moment you're just afraid to put your foot down, you might blow yourself up. <laughs> you know, you can walk, you can run in serving God. Now, you are very careful because you love God and you want to please Him. You don't want to hurt Him. You don't want to disappoint Him. You care about His will and His word and His work. And so in that sense, yes, you're very careful and you're very concerned. But not like this, this, you know, terror, you know, that you're afraid to do anything. That's almost like the one talent man. I knew you were hard, man. I, I was just afraid I'd do something wrong with this talent. No, we don't have to have that attitude. You know, we shouldn't have that attitude. We ought to have confidence. Does that make sense? Yes. And 
the line of thinking that says, I can't mess up or God is going to send me to hell, like, that keeps you from doing anything effectively for God. Exactly. So that's why, like, the confidence of walking in the light, far from making me, like, want to just, like, run off and do all kinds of crazy things, like, gives me a lot of confidence to actually serve God, which is what I want to do all along. And gives you so much more gratitude yes. and love and all that sort of thing. Yes. Once we really see the love of God, that's a stronger motivation than just terror that if we do anything wrong, we'll go to hell. I mean, really, it is. I mean, you think about, I bet you anything, when Logan was two, if his parents weren't looking, he stole the cookie. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that in Logan. <laughs> but now, if Logan knew his parents really didn't want something, you know, even if they weren't looking, even if they would never find out, He's concerned with honoring them and respecting them and loving them. Love is a stronger emotion. We're going to be a lot more faithful to the Lord because we really love Him, because we know how much He loves us. We're just, we really are close to Him. It's just, it's, it's like, wow, we need to grow up to the real relationship with God. And part of that is based upon the confidence that God does keep forgiving us, that He is merciful. He is righteous to forgive us our sins. It's not, certainly not that we use that as a license. That's Jude 4. You know, people turn the grace of God into licentiousness. You know, how much can I get by with since God is gracious? Those kind of people don't understand anything. You know, that's not at all the kind of relationship we have with God. And, and with that kind of mentality, you know, they won't make it. You know, they have no fellowship with God to begin with. Does that make sense? So I do think this passage gives us really strong confidence that we can be in continuing right relationship with God as long as we keep walking with Him, we keep confessing the sins as we, as we see them and commit them, and we're just earnestly seeking the Lord. You know, we know that God will continue to cleanse us, and He doesn't think we're going to be to the point where we can say, I have no sin. If we ever get to that point where we say, oh, I have no sin, we're lying. It's wrong. You know, we see our imperfections. We know we're not where we want to be. So we keep striving to go closer to him, not with terror, but with love and hope and a real desire to be his disciples. Other thoughts and comments on all that? I think that was a that was a practical question, very helpful to us. So um, I think that's pretty much First uh, John chapter one, uh, ten verses in an hour. That's not bad in First John. <laughs> we may go a little faster than that sometimes, but uh, uh, but thanks for uh, participating in this. I guess we will actually do.